0: Volume One, Section Fourteen of the Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlotte Bronte by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Volume One, Section Fourteen. Chapter Ten. Early in March, 1841, Miss Bronte obtained her second and last situation as a governess. This time she esteemed herself fortunate in becoming a member of a kind-hearted and friendly household. The master of it she especially regarded as a valuable friend, whose advice helped to guide her in one very important step of her life. But as her definite acquirements were few, she had to eke them out by employing her leisure time in needlework and altogether her position was that of Bonn, or nursery governess, liable to repeated and never-ending calls upon her time. This description of uncertain, yet perpetual employment, subject to the exercise of another person's will at all hours of the day, was peculiarly trying to one whose life at home had been full of abundant leisure. Idle she never was in any place, But, of the multitude of small talks, plans, duties, pleasures, etc., that make up most people's days, her home life was nearly destitute. This made it possible for her to go through long and deep histories of feeling and imagination, for which others, odd as it sounds, rarely have time. This made it inevitable that, later on, in her too short career, the intensity of her feeling should wear out her physical health. The habit of making out which had grown with her growth, and strengthened with her strength, had become a part of her nature. Yet all exercise of her strongest and most characteristic faculties was now out of the question. She could not, as while she was at Miss W.'s, feel, amidst the occupations of the day, that when evening came she might employ herself in more congenial ways. No doubt, all who enter upon the career of a governess have to relinquish much. No doubt, it must ever be a life of sacrifice but to charlotte brontë it was a perpetual attempt to force all her faculties into a direction for which the whole of her previous life had unfitted them moreover the little brontës had been brought up motherless and from knowing nothing of the gaiety and sportiveness of childhood from never having experienced caresses or fond attentions themselves they were ignorant of the very nature of infancy or how to call out its engaging qualities children were to them the troublesome necessities of humanity. They had never been drawn into contact with them in any other way. Years afterwards, when Miss Bronte came to stay with us, she watched our little girls perpetually, and I could not persuade her that they were only average specimens of well-brought-up children. She was surprised and touched by any sign of thoughtfulness for others, of kindness to animals, or of unselfishness on their part and constantly maintained that she was in the right, and I in the wrong, when we differed on the point of their unusual excellence. All this must be borne in mind while reading the following letters, and it must likewise be borne in mind by those who, surviving her, look back upon her life from their mount of observation, how no distaste, no suffering, ever made her shrink from any course which she believed it to be her duty to engage in. March 3rd. 1841. I told some time since that I meant to get a situation, and when I said so my resolution was quite fixed. I felt that, however often I was disappointed, I had no intention of relinquishing my efforts. After being severely baffled two or three times, after a world of trouble in the way of correspondence and interviews, I have at length succeeded, and am fairly established in my new place." THE HOUSE IS NOT VERY LARGE, BUT EXCEEDINGLY COMFORTABLE AND WELL-REGULATED. THE GROUNDS ARE FINE AND EXTENSIVE. IN TAKING THE PLACE I HAVE MADE A LARGE SACRIFICE IN THE WAY OF SALARY, IN THE HOPE OF SECURING COMFORT, BY WHICH WORD I DO NOT MEAN TO EXPRESS GOOD EATING AND DRINKING, OR WARM FIRE OR A SOFT BED, BUT THE SOCIETY OF CHEERFUL FACES AND MINDS AND HEARTS NOT DUG OUT OF A LEAD-MINE, OR CUT FROM A MARBLE QUARRY. My salary is not really more than sixteen pounds per annum, though it is nominally twenty pounds, but the expense of washing will be deducted therefrom. My pupils are two in number, a girl of eight and a boy of six. As to my employers, you will not expect me to say much about their characters when I tell you that I only arrived here yesterday. I have not the faculty of telling an individual's disposition at first sight before I can venture to pronounce on a character, I must see it first, under various lights, and from various points of view. All I can say, therefore, is, both Mr. and Mrs. blank seem to me good sort of people. I have as yet had no cause to complain of want of considerateness or civility. My pupils are wild and unbroken, but apparently well disposed. I wish I may be able to say as much next time I write to you. My earnest wish and endeavour will be to please them. If I can but feel that I am giving satisfaction, and if at the same time I can keep my health, I shall, I hope, be moderately happy. But no one but myself can tell how hard a governess's work is for me, for no one but myself is aware how utterly averse my whole mind and nature are for the employment. Do not think that I fail to blame myself for this, or that I leave any means, unemployed to conquer this feeling. Some of my greatest difficulties lie in things that would appear to you comparatively trivial. I find it is so hard to repel the rude familiarity of children. I find it so difficult to ask either servants or mistress for anything I want, however much I want it. It is less pain for me to endure the greatest inconvenience than to go into the kitchen to request its removal. I am a fool— Heaven knows I cannot help it. Now you can tell me whether it is considered improper for governesses to ask their friends to come and see them. I do not mean, of course, to stay, but just for a call of an hour or two. If it is not absolute treason, I do fervently request that you will contrive, in some way or other, to let me have a sight of your face. Yet I feel, at the same time, that I am making a very foolish and almost impracticable demand yet this is only four miles from B. March twenty-first, You must excuse a very short answer to your most welcome letter, for my time is entirely occupied. Mrs. Blank expected a good deal of sewing from me. I cannot sew much during the day on account of the children who require the utmost attention. I am obliged, therefore, to devote the evenings to this business. Write to me often— very long letters. It will do both of us good. This place is far better than blank. But God knows I have enough to do to keep a good heart in the matter. What you said has cheered me a little. I wish I could always act according to your advice. Homesickness affects me sorely. I like Mr. blank extremely. The children are overindulged and consequently hard at times to manage. Do, do come and see me if it be a breach of etiquette, never mind. If you can only stop an hour, come. Talk no more about my forsaking you, my darling, I could not afford to do it. I find it is not in my nature to get on in this weary world without sympathy and attachment in some quarter, and seldom, indeed, do we find it. It is too great a treasure to be ever wantonly thrown away when once secured." Miss Bronte had not been many weeks in her new situation before she had a proof of the kind-hearted hospitality of her employers. Mr. Blank wrote to her father and urgently invited him to come and make acquaintance with his daughter's new home, by spending a week with her in it, and Mrs. Blank expressed great regret when one of Miss Bronte's friends drove up to the house to leave a letter or parcel without entering." So she found that all her friends might freely visit her, and that her father would be received with especial gladness. She thankfully acknowledged this kindness in writing to urge her friends afresh to come and see her, which she accordingly did. June 1841. You can hardly fancy it possible, I dare say, that I cannot find a quarter of an hour to scribble a note in, but it is so and when a note is written, it has to be carried a mile to the post, and that consumes nearly an hour, which is a large portion of the day. Mr. and Mrs. Blank have been gone a week. I heard from them this morning. No time is fixed for their return, but I hope it will not be delayed long, or I shall miss the chance of seeing Anne this vacation. She came home, I understand, last Wednesday, and is only to be allowed three weeks' vacation, because the family she is with— are going to Scarborough. I should like to see her, to judge for myself of the state of her health. I dare not trust any other person's report. No one seems minute enough in their observations. I should very much have liked you to have seen her. I have got on very well with the servants and children so far. Yet it is dreary, solitary work. You can tell as well as me the lonely feeling of being without a companion. Soon after this was written, Mr. and Mrs. Blank returned, in time to allow Charlotte to go and look after Anne's health, which, as she found to her intense anxiety, was far from strong. What could she do to nurse and cherish up this little sister, the youngest of them all? Apprehension about her brought up once more the idea of keeping a school. If, by this means, they three could live together and maintain themselves, all might go well, They would have some time of their own, in which to try again, and yet again, at that literary career, which, in spite of all baffling difficulties, was never quite set aside as an ultimate object. But far the strongest motive, with Charlotte, was the conviction that Anne's health was so delicate that it required a degree of tending which none but her sister could give. Thus she wrote, during those midsummer holidays. Howarth, July 18th eighteen forty one We waited long and anxiously for you on the Thursday that you promised to come. I quite wearied my eyes with watching from the window, eyeglass in hand, and sometimes spectacles on nose. However, you are not to blame, and as to disappointment, why, all must suffer disappointment at some period or other of their lives. But a hundred things I had to say to you will now be forgotten, and never said there is a project hatching in this house, which both Emily and I anxiously wished to discuss with you. The project is yet in its infancy, hardly peeping from its shell, and whether it will ever become out of fine, full-fledged chicken, or will turn addle, and die before it cheeps, is one of those considerations that are but dimly revealed by the oracles of futurity." Now, don't be nonplused by all this metaphorical mystery. I talk of a plain and everyday occurrence, though, in Delphic style, I wrap up the information in figures of speech concerning eggs, chickens, etc., etc. To come to the point, Papa and Aunt talk, by fits and starts, of our, it est, Emily, Anne, and myself, commencing a school. I have often, you know, said how much I wished such a thing, but I never could conceive where the capital was to come from for making such a speculation. I was well aware, indeed, that Aunt had money, but I always considered that she was the last person who would offer a loan for the purpose in question. A loan, however, she has offered, or rather intimates, that she perhaps will offer in case pupils can be secured an eligible situation obtained, etc. This sounds very fair, but still there are matters to be considered which throw something of a damp upon the scheme. I do not expect that aunt will sink more than hundred and fifty pounds in such a venture. And would it be possible to establish a respectable, not by any means a showy, school, and to commence housekeeping with a capital of only that amount? Propound the question to your sister, if you think she can answer it, if not don't say a word on the subject as to getting into debt that is a thing we could none of us reconcile our minds to for a moment we do not care how modest how humble our commencement be so it be made on sure grounds and have a safe foundation in thinking of all possible and impossible places where we could establish a school i have thought of burlington or rather of the neighborhood of burlington do you remember whether there was any other school there besides that of miss blank's this is of course a perfectly crude and random idea there are a hundred reasons why it should be an impracticable one we have no connections no acquaintances there it is far from home etc still i fancy the ground in the east riding is less fully occupied than in the west much inquiry and consideration will be necessary of course BEFORE ANY PLACE IS DECIDED ON, AND I FEAR MUCH TIME WILL ELAPSE BEFORE ANY PLAN IS EXECUTED. WRITE AS SOON AS YOU CAN. I SHALL NOT LEAVE MY PRESENT SITUATION, TILL MY FUTURE PROSPECTS ASSUME A MORE FIXED AND DEFINITE ASPECT. A FORTNIGHT AFTERWARDS WE SEE THAT THE SEED HAS BEEN SOWN WHICH WAS TO GROW UP INTO A PLAN MATERIALLY INFLUENCING HER FUTURE LIFE. AUGUST seventh, 1841 This is Saturday evening. I have put the children to bed. Now I am going to sit down and answer your letter. I am again, by myself, housekeeper and governess, for Mr. and Mrs. Blank are staying at Blank. To speak truth, though I am solitary while they are away, it is still by far the happiest part of my time. The children are under decent control, the servants are very observant and attentive to me, and the occasional absence, of the master and mistress, relieves me from the duty of always endeavouring to seem cheerful and conversable. Martha, blank, it appears, is in the way of enjoying great advantages. So is Mary, for you will be surprised to hear that she is returning immediately to the continent with her brother, not, however, to stay there, but to take a month's tour and recreation. I have had a long letter from Mary— and a packet containing a present of a very handsome black silk scarf, and a pair of beautiful kid gloves, bought at Brussels. Of course I was in one sense pleased with the gift, pleased that they should think of me so far off, amidst the excitements of one of the most splendid capitals of Europe, and yet it felt irksome to accept it. I should think Mary and Martha have not more than sufficient pocket-money to supply themselves. I wish they had testified their regard by a less expensive token. Mary's letters spoke of some of the pictures and cathedrals she had seen, pictures the most exquisite, cathedrals the most venerable. I hardly know what swelled to my throat as I read her letter. Such a vehement impatience of restraint and steady work, such a strong wish for wings, wings such as wealth can furnish, such an urgent thirst to see, to know, to learn. Something internal seemed to expand bodily for a minute. I was tantalized by the consciousness of faculties unexercised. Then all collapsed, and I despaired. My dear, I would hardly make that confession to anyone but yourself, and to you, rather in a letter, than viva voce. These rebellious and absurd emotions were only momentary. I quelled them in five minutes. I hope they will not revive— for they were acutely painful. No further steps have been taken about the project I mentioned to you, nor probably will be for the present. But Emily and Anne and I keep it in view. It is our polar star, and we look to it in all circumstances of despondency. I begin to suspect I am writing in a strain which will make you think I am unhappy. This is far from being the case. On the contrary, I know my place is a favorable one for a governess. What dismays and haunts me sometimes is a conviction that I have no natural knack for my vocation. If teaching only were requisite, it would be smooth and easy. But it is the living in other people's houses, the estrangement from one's real character, the adoption of a cold, rigid, apathetic exterior that is painful. You will not mention our school project at present. A project not actually commenced is always uncertain. Write to me often, my dear Nell. You know your letters are valued. Your loving child, as you choose to call me so, C.B. P.S. I am well in health. Don't fancy I am not. But I have one aching feeling at my heart. I must allude to it, though I had resolved not to. It is about Anne. She has so much to endure. Far, far more than I ever had— When my thoughts turn to her, they always see her as a patient, persecuted stranger. I know what concealed susceptibility is in her nature, when her feelings are wounded. I wish I could be with her, to administer a little balm. She is more lonely, less gifted with the power of making friends, even than I am. Drop the subject. She could bear much for herself, but she could not patiently bear the sorrow of others especially of her sisters. And again, of the two sisters, the idea of the little, gentle, youngest, suffering in lonely patience, was insupportable to her. Something must be done. No matter if the desired end were far away, all time was lost in which she was not making progress, however slow, towards it. To have a school was to have some portion of the daily leisure, uncontrolled but by her own sense of duty, It was for the three sisters, loving each other with so passionate an affection, to be together under one roof, and yet earning their own subsistence. Above all, it was to have the power of watching over these two, whose life and happiness were ever to Charlotte far more than her own. But no trembling impatience should lead her to take an unwise step in haste. She inquired in every direction she could as to the chances which a new school might have of success. In all there seemed more establishments, like the one which the sisters wished to set up, than could be supported. What was to be done? Superior advantages must be offered. But how? They themselves abounded in thought, power, and information. But these are qualifications scarcely fit to be inserted in a prospectus. Of French they knew something, enough to read it fluently but hardly enough to teach it in competition with natives or professional masters. Emily and Anne had some knowledge of music, but here again it was doubtful whether, without more instruction, they could engage to give lessons in it. Just about this time Miss Blank was thinking of relinquishing her school at Dewsbury Moor, and offered to give it up in favor of her old pupils, the Brontes. A sister of hers had taken the active management since the time when Charlotte was a teacher. But the number of pupils had diminished, and if the Bronites undertook it, they would have to try and work it up to its former state of prosperity. This, again, would require advantages on their part which they did not at present possess, but which Charlotte caught a glimpse of. She resolved to follow the clue, and never to rest till she had reached a successful issue. With the forced calm of a suppressed eagerness, that sends a glow of desire through every word of the following letter, she wrote to her aunt thus. Dear Aunt, September twenty ninth, 1841 I have heard nothing of Miss W. yet since I wrote to her, intimating that I would accept her offer. I cannot conjecture the reason of this long silence, unless some unforeseen impediment has occurred in concluding the bargain. Meantime, a plan has been suggested and approved by Mr. and Mrs. Blank, the father and mother of her pupils, and others which I wish now to impart to you. My friends recommend me, if I desire to secure permanent success, to delay commencing the school for six months longer, and by all means to contrive, by hook or by crook, to spend the intervening time in some school on the continent. They say schools in England are so numerous— competition so great, that without some step towards attaining superiority we shall probably have a very hard struggle, and may fail in the end. They say, moreover, that the loan of a hundred pounds, which you have been so kind as to offer us, will perhaps not be all required now, as Miss Blank will lend us the furniture, and that, if the speculation is intended to be a good and successful one, half the sum, at least, ought to be laid out in the manner I have mentioned, thereby ensuring a more speedy repayment both of interest and principal i would not go to france or to paris i would go to brussels in belgium the cost of the journey there at the dearest rate of travelling would be five pounds living is there little more than half as dear as it is in england and the facilities for education are equal or superior to any other place in europe in half a year I could acquire a thorough familiarity with French, I could improve greatly in Italian, and even get a dash of German, i.e. providing my health continued as good as it is now. Mary is now staying at Brussels, at a first-rate establishment there. I should not think of going to the Chateau de kockelberg where she is resident, as the terms are much too high. But if I wrote to her, she, with the assistance of Mrs. Jenkins, the wife of the British chaplain, would be able to secure me a cheap, decent residence and respectable protection. I should have the opportunity of seeing her frequently. She would make me acquainted with the city, and, with the assistance of her cousins, I should probably be introduced to connections far more improving, polished, and cultivated than any I have yet known. These are advantages which would turn to real accounts when we actually commenced a school and if Emily could share them with me, we could take a footing in the world afterwards, which we can never do now. I say Emily instead of Anne, for Anne might take her turn at some future period, if our school answered. I feel certain, while I am writing, that you will see the propriety of what I say. You always like to use your money to the best advantage. You are not fond of making shabby purchases. When you do confer a favor, it is often done in style, and depend upon it, fifty pounds or a hundred pounds, thus laid out, would be well employed. Of course, I know no other friend in the world to whom I could apply on this subject except yourself. I feel an absolute conviction that, if this advantage were allowed us, it would be the making of us for life. Papa will, perhaps, think it a wild and ambitious scheme. But whoever rose in the world without ambition? When he left Ireland to go to Cambridge University— He was as ambitious as I am now. I want us all to get on. I know we have talents, and I want them to be turned to account. I look to you, aunt, to help us. I think you will not refuse. I know, if you consent, it shall not be my fault if you ever repent of your kindness. This letter was written from the house in which she was residing as governess. It was some little time before an answer came— Much had to be talked over between the father and aunt in Haworth Parsonage. At last consent was given. Then, and not till then, she confided her plan to an intimate friend. She was not one to talk over much about any project while it remained uncertain, to speak about her labor in any direction while its result was doubtful. November second, 1841 Now let us begin to quarrel in the first place, I must consider whether I will commence operations on the defensive or the offensive. The defensive, I think. You say, and I see plainly, that your feelings have been hurt by an apparent want of confidence on my part. You heard from others of Miss W.'s overtures before I communicated them to you myself. This is true. I was deliberating on plans important to my future prospects. I never exchanged a letter with you on the subject. True again. This appears strange conduct to a friend near and dear, long known, and never found wanting. Most true. I cannot give you my excuses for this behavior. This word excuse implies confession of a fault, and I do not feel that I have been in fault. The plain fact is, I was not, and am not now certain of my destiny. On the contrary, I have been most uncertain perplexed with contradictory schemes and proposals. My time, as I have often told you, is fully occupied. Yet I had many letters to write, which it was absolutely necessary should be written. I knew it would avail nothing to write to you then to say I was in doubt and uncertainty, hoping this, fearing that, anxious, eagerly desirous to do what seemed impossible to be done. When I thought of you in that busy interval, it was to resolve— "'that you should know all when my way was clear, "'and my grand end attained. "'If I could, I would always work in silence and obscurity, "'and let my efforts be known by their results. "'Miss W. did most kindly propose "'that I should come to Dewsbury Moor "'and attempt to revive the school her sister had relinquished. "'She offered me the use of her furniture. "'At first I received the proposal cordially, "'and prepared to do my utmost to bring about success.' but a fire was kindled in my very heart, which I could not quench. I so longed to increase my attainments, to become something better than I am. A glimpse of what I felt, I showed to you in one of my former letters, only a glimpse, Mary cast oil upon the flames, encouraged me, and in her own strong, energetic language, heartened me on. I longed to go to Brussels, but how could I get there? I wished for one, at least, of my sisters, to share the advantage with me. I fixed on Emily. She deserved the reward, I knew. How could the point be managed? In extreme excitement, I wrote a letter home which carried the day. I made an appeal to aunt for assistance, which was answered by consent. Things are not settled, yet it is sufficient to say we have a chance of going for half a year. Dewsbury Moor is relinquished, perhaps fortunately so. In my secret soul, I believe there is no cause to regret it. My plans for the future are bounded to this intention. If I once get to Brussels, and if my health is spared, I will do my best to make the utmost of every advantage that shall come within my reach. When the half-year is expired, I will do what I can. Believe me, though I was born in April, the month of cloud and sunshine, I am not changeful. My spirits are unequal, AND SOMETIMES I SPEAK VEHEMENTLY, AND SOMETIMES I SAY NOTHING AT ALL, BUT I HAVE A STEADY REGARD FOR YOU, AND IF YOU WILL LET THE CLOUD AND SHOWER PASS BY, BE SURE THE SUN IS ALWAYS BEHIND, OBSCURED, BUT STILL EXISTING. At CHRISTMAS SHE LEFT HER SITUATION, AFTER A PARTING WITH HER EMPLOYERS, WHICH SEEMS TO HAVE AFFECTED AND TOUCHED HER GREATLY. THEY ONLY MADE TOO MUCH OF ME, WAS HER REMARK AFTER LEAVING THIS FAMILY. I DID NOT DESERVE IT. all four children hoped to meet together at their father's house this december branwell expected to have a short leave of absence from his employment as a clerk on the leeds and manchester railway in which he had been engaged for five months Anne arrives before christmas day she had rendered herself so valuable in her difficult situation that her employers vehemently urged her to return although she had announced her resolution to leave them partly on account of the harsh treatment she had received, and partly because her stay at home, during her sister's absence in Belgium, seemed desirable, when the age of the three remaining inhabitants of the parsonage was taken into consideration. After some correspondence, and much talking over plans at home, it seemed better, in consequence of letters, which they received from Brussels, giving a discouraging account of the schools there, that Charlotte and Emily should go to an institution at Lilly, in the north of France, which was highly recommended by Baptist Noel and other clergymen. Indeed, at the end of January, it was arranged that they were to set off for this place in three weeks, under the escort of a French lady, then visiting in London. The terms were fifty pounds, each pupil, for board and French alone, but a separate room was to be allowed for this sum. Without this indulgence, it was lower. Charlotte writes, January twentieth eighteen forty two. I consider it kind in aunt to consent to an extra sum for a separate room. We shall find it a great privilege in many ways. I regret the change from Brussels to Lily on many accounts, chiefly that I shall not see Martha. Mary has been indefatigably kind in providing me with information. She has grudged no labour, and scarcely any expense, to that end. Mary's price is above rubies. I have, in fact, two friends, you and her, staunch and true, in whose faith and sincerity I have as strong a belief as I have in the Bible. I have bothered you both, you especially, but you always get the tongs and heap coals of fire upon my head. I have had letters to write lately to Brussels, to Lily, and to London. I have lots of chemises, nightgowns, pocket-handkerchiefs, and pockets to make, besides clothes to repair. I have been, every week since I came home, expecting to see Branwell, and he has never been able to get over yet. We fully expect him, however, next Saturday. Under these circumstances, how can I go visiting? You tantalize me to death with talking of conversations by the fireside. Depend upon it, we are not to have any such, for many a long month to come." I get an interesting impression of old age upon my face, and when you see me next, I shall certainly wear caps and spectacles End of Section fourteen Recording by Katie Riley, march two thousand nine